But I think the why for me is also really important because you can have all these revenue goals, expansion goals. Growing a business on your home turf is hard enough. But what does it take to expand into other countries or even across the world? But, you know, it's sort of what are we trying to do and why does this matter? And how are we trying to be part of changing this industry and lifting this economy and creating employment and giving people more dignity and generating livelihoods? I mean, there's to me, it's so much more than getting to 30 stores. Welcome to season three of Grit and Growth from Stanford Seed, the podcast where Africa and South Asia's intrepid entrepreneurs share their trials and triumphs with insights from Stanford faculty and global experts on how to tackle challenges and grow your business. For the first episode of the season, we're staying true to our name and bringing you a story of growth. I guess in some ways I'm surprised you haven't done a podcast before. You're like the perfect podcast guest, so... Maybe there'll be more. That perfect podcast guest I'm talking to, that's Wandia Gishuru. My name is Wandia Gishuru, and I am a Kenyan entrepreneur, and I founded and am the CEO of the Vivo Fashion Group, which is a fashion business based out of Nairobi, Kenya. Wandia has spent 12 years building Vivo into a nationally recognized brand. And now she wants to expand beyond Kenya, across East Africa, and potentially across the Atlantic. So right now we have 21 stores in Kenya, one in Rwanda. So that's our first, we only opened that beginning of this year, and it's our first store outside of Kenya. We plan by the end of next year to have 30 stores in total. And I think out of the eight that will open, probably four will be outside of Kenya. So we're very determined to expand through our own stores in other parts of East Africa. But we're not going to start with that first store outside of Kenya. I'm going to take you back to the very beginning, because the foundation of Vivo's expansion was built long before they crossed any borders. In fact, many of the lessons that brought them here are the same ones that will get them there, to Rwanda, America, and perhaps around the globe. We'll hear about the needs finding, brand building, and adaptability that put Wandia on the map. Plus, the many pivots that made Vivo the company it is today. Actually, Vivo itself was something of a pivot. Was it always your dream to create a fashion brand? Absolutely not. <laughs> I have no background in fashion or in design or in retail or in manufacturing. So, no, not at all. I studied economics at university and then went into international development. I was a policy advisor for about almost 20 years before I went into business. How did we go from that to, is the correct name Vivo Active? Well, Vivo Active Wear is what we initially called the company because we started it, and I, start, I say we because I started with a good friend. While I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do next, she was had just left her job and we were doing a ton of dance classes and yoga and Pilates and all this sort of fun, healthy stuff and realized that there just wasn't merchandise we wanted to buy dance shoes and proper Pilates equipment and stuff like that. And that just didn't exist in the market. And so we were like, oh, okay, well, if we're looking for it and can't find it, I'm sure there are other people who must, who must be experiencing the same thing. And that was the original idea for Vivo was to supply dance and fitness. And we were going to do it online only. And within a couple of months my house had turned into the store because no one wanted to buy anything they hadn't seen and tried on. And so 
it was crazy. I didn't have a living room. There were boxes everywhere with inventory. And, and so we decided at that stage that we would open a physical store. And when we Wait, did Before that, we go to the physical stores, sorry, I'm going to, yeah. I should warn you. I tend to interrupt people. And That's good. That's good. And it's because I want to dig down into certain things. Because one of the things that frustrates me about entrepreneurial podcasts is there's always this leap like, well, we had this idea that, you know, there's a need here we needed to fill. And then the next sentence is, and then we started selling this product out of the living room. <laughs> and I want to understand, like, you're an international development economist. How did the clothes get made? Who designed them? Like, I understand spotting a, you know, a white space. Yeah, so it, to start with, we literally just bought stuff out, you know, from other countries. So I ordered a bunch of stuff out of the UK, a bunch of stuff out of South Africa, and then China. So those were the three places we sourced from and made tons of mistakes. So for example, before I tested any of the product, some of the suppliers, you know, said, well, if you buy this volume, you'll get a better price. So I just bought more than I should have because I thought it would end up being cheaper and I just assumed everything would sell. And of course, some of it didn't sell at all. And I was stuck with a ton of, of dead stock. While Wandia made plenty of rookie mistakes, she also benefited from some beginner's luck. When we decided that my house wasn't going to be the option in the medium term and we should open a store, we went to one of Nairobi's largest malls, which happened to be really close to where I live. And they had just built a second wing. And we walked into the management office and said, we'd like store space. <laughs> and they're like, oh, so what's your business? And we sort of gave the name and they're like, oh, that sounds really interesting. Actually, there is one space left. And they said, look, put an application in quickly. We'll need your business plan. And we didn't have a business plan. So I, I came home and downloaded a template from the internet and just threw numbers in and went back the next day and said, here's our plan. And they said, great, you have you can have the space. And it was only a couple of years later that I met people who said they'd been on a waiting list for like a year, waiting to get a space at the mall and hadn't gotten one. So sometimes it's just that luck and timing and who you meet and who likes your story, because that location ended up being the best thing that happened to us. If we had opened at another location, I don't know that the business would have generated enough income for us to keep investing. Because I blew, I blew all my savings on this one investment. Like getting that store took almost, you know, $80,000 to set up. And then we panicked, you know, and we were like, oh my God, we've just signed a six-year lease. Rent's going to go up every year by 10%. What if there are not enough people to buy dance stuff? And so that's when we decided to introduce a clothing line that would complement the dance stuff. So then we picked stretchy fabrics, things that looked like you could almost exercise in them, but were also sort of more regular clothing. I just did a trip to Bangkok and went to the wholesale markets and just bought a whole bunch of stuff. And when we opened the store, that's what everyone loved. Like no, hardly anyone bought any of the dance stuff and people just love the clothing. But the reason people liked it so much is not because they were into the athleisure look, but because the clothing was super comfortable and it fit better than a lot of the clothing that was available on the market because of the kind of fabrics that we chose. But we didn't choose those fabrics for that reason. We chose those fabrics because we thought they went along with the fitness stuff. And so we kind of, not by design, but just by default, stumbled upon a challenge 
that a lot of people were facing, which was finding clothes that look good and were comfortable and fit well on African women, body shapes and sizes. And so once we understood that that's what people loved, we started bringing all kinds of other clothing that isn't necessarily linked to fitness, but is designed specifically for this customer in mind, which is a woman of color, basically. Wandia had chanced upon a real gap in the market, a gap that she soon discovered was no accident. 98%, I would say, 95 to 98% of all the clothing in Kenya is imported, the bulk of which is secondhand. But even the 20% that's new, it was not made for this customer. So when people in North America and Europe and other parts of the world get rid of their clothes, those clothes get sold to agents or organizations. There are at least 50,000 people employed in logistics companies that just in the U.S. that do nothing but bundle these clothings into packages and then sell them. The volumes are out of this world. The amount of clothing that gets thrown away, given away. And, you know, it's only gotten more because of fast fashion, because of social media. A lot of people want to, you know, only be seen once wearing an outfit. They're buying super cheap, fast fashion stuff. And so all of that has to go somewhere. And most of it is synthetic. And so it's not even that easy to get rid of. So it ends up coming in massive container loads to countries like Kenya. And that is what 80% of Kenyans wear, many people down to their underwear. Like there are many Kenyans who have never bought a new item of clothing in their lifetime. I really hope there's nobody running around in my underwear. <laughs> so yeah, and, and unfortunately, about 30 to 40% of what ends up here is not even sellable. It's like soiled, dirty, torn, and ends up in landfills. It becomes garbage on this side of the ocean. Decades of these cheap imports took their toll on Kenyan clothing manufacturers. The fashion industry, the local fashion industry here, had become almost non-existent. We got flooded by all the secondhand stuff. And so the local textile mills that existed, I think in the 70s and 80s, there were about 20, 25 pretty large textile mills. One by one, they all shut down. And it just became harder and harder and harder to compete because the secondhand products are very cheap. The destruction of the local textile industry left Kenyans with the scraps, cheap, ill-fitting, and sometimes secondhand clothing. With her stretchy fabrics and eye for color, Wandia had accidentally stumbled upon that gap in the market. And now that she understood the root cause, she could address those needs even better. So she adapted her business once again. So the second big pivot then was when we decided to start making and designing, producing locally. And that's because the clothing that we were buying from Asia was just too limited. A lot of clothes that you, when you buy stuff off the wholesale market in places like Thailand, literally come in one size because 70 to 80% of Thai women are within a really narrow sort of height range and weight range and stuff like that. So, I mean, that was only catering to a very small percentage of Kenyan women. And so when we decided to start designing and manufacturing locally, we took all the lessons that we'd learned from, you know, what we'd offered 
for the two years before that and just expanded it now. And so we were able to introduce a much wider size range and many more colors and prints and things that, again, may not seem so obvious, but, you know, a typical Caucasian may not be as comfortable wearing bright orange or bright yellow dress, you know, whereas on dark skin tone, it just pops. And it was weird because in the beginning, every a lot of people said, oh, Kenyans don't really like local. They think imported products are better. So don't tell anybody. Don't advertise it. So because we, at that point, I think we had four or five stores, we literally just started producing and putting stuff on the racks without saying that it was made in Kenya. And no one could tell the difference. We were buying the same sort of fabrics that the products we imported were made from we're using. So the sewing machines are Japanese or Chinese. The threads come from, you know what I mean? So why would it be that different? I've never bought into that local is inferior argument. It turns out that many Kenyans felt the same way. So what started as a practical decision became a differentiator and a story that propelled Vivo forward. What we also then realized was actually sentiments are changing and maybe my generation and older my parents' generation might have felt that way because they, you know, lived through colonialism and all that. But much younger generations don't feel like that at all. In fact, they're quite proud to buy local and wear local. And then we started to talk about it more. And then the story really got exciting. And in fact, we got a lot more media coverage. Journalists wanted to write about it. TV stations wanted to come and interview us. We definitely, you know, started getting a lot more local coverage in the press and a lot of PR. And so there was a lot of excitement. And I think, I like to think that we also have been instrumental in sort of opening the doors for others because we've seen a lot more local brands come up in the last six, seven, eight years. Vivo had two major pivots in its first few years. Those pivots were successful because they focused on customer needs. And the way you discover those needs doesn't have to be some big formal operation. Vivo is a great example of how that process can be baked into your company's DNA. You talked about sort of lessons you learned over two years of selling these, this clothing that you had sourced in Asia. Did you ever, you know, going back to like standard marketing, good best practice, did you ever do like a focus group or customer need finding exercise? Was there any sort of formal process where you tried to elicit a better understanding of the customer needs? Nope. None. I mean, we listen to our customers. And when ladies spend an hour in your store trying on 20, 30 different things, they talk a lot. So that's where our market research was. Just real time, listening to the customers, listening to what they liked, what they didn't like, what they asked for and we didn't have. In our previous marketing masterclass with Stanford professor Jonathan Lavav, we spoke about the importance of knowing your customers. Here's what he had to say. People think that their task is to make a product. Their task is to understand customer needs and to create a product that meets those needs. And I think that if you're a CEO of a company and you don't speak or interact with customers at least once a week, you're not doing your job. I had a participant once, she had some company that made rice. Okay, so she needs to go to a grocery store and watch people choosing rice. See how much time are they spending? What are they looking for? Intercept somebody and say, hey, 
why do you choose this rice over this rice? See what kind of answer you get. Maybe they say, oh, I like this one better than this one because it's cheaper. Or I buy this one because my mom used to buy it. Or I buy this one because I like the color pink and the packaging is pink. It gives you a lot of information that then you can follow up on and sort of study more systematically. So you got to get out of the office. You're never going to solve these problems staying in the office. And by the way, you, the boss, needs to get out of the office. Not just your underlings, not just your marketing person. You need to feel it on your flesh. Maybe you don't go out that often, as often as the marketing person does, but you need to feel it on your flesh. Unless you feel it on your flesh, it's not going to work. In the years later, I've tried a couple of uh, focus groups, and it's great, but I mean, it's 10 people, and it's 10 different opinions. But we have, in any given month, several hundred, if not a thousand customers that come in. And so the data now that you can get and use if you're able to attribute different aspects of your product in your data, then you can start to see, well, when you do these kind of styles in this fabric, it works really well. It sells out in in a couple of weeks. And when you do it in this fabric, it doesn't move. So the data tells you a lot as well. I mean, when you, if you were to describe the customer for Vivo, how would you describe them? Yeah, well, it's typically a woman in her 30s and 40s, um, but we do have customers in their 20s and in their teens and in their 50s, 60s, 70s. So it just depends. I mean, my mother wears Vivo. A friend's mother who just turned 84 bought a jumpsuit last week at a Vivo store. So it really depends on the individual. But a lot of our clothing is casual, smart casual, very versatile. So it's stuff you can wear to work, dress it up, dress it down a lot of basics and people like the versatility. They like the fact that you could buy something and wear it three different ways and lots of different types of occasions. But yes, so typically it's a more mature, professional woman. Our price point in Kenya would be considered medium to high. In the US, it would be low. We'd be considered in the lower not the lowest of the low, but, you know, our average product is about $30, $35. So one of the things that they also cover in marketing here is that describing your customer not by demographics, but by needs. And, and you actually did that naturally because you started out by saying, yeah, 30 to 35, but also 60, also 70, even 85. And then you describe the actual need, which is comfortable colors that are popular in, for the, in the African context, a fit that's more shaped to our bodies and versatile. You could wear it to work. You could wear it casually. Those are all customer needs and they defy, you know, the age segmentation. So I think you've naturally gotten to that place, which is I'm fulfilling specific needs, not specific age demographics. Wandia had carved out a nice little niche for herself, but she was still new to running a business. I want to talk a little bit about your business growth story. So you had a couple of stores. I understand by year six, you had seven stores, you had 70 employees, and you kept on growing. And, you know, as somebody who never imagined they would be an entrepreneur, what were some of your challenges as an entrepreneur? I think at the stage by year six and the, in the stage you're, you're referring to, I still had a very thin management team. So I had stores with sales staff. I had a couple of designers. We had maybe 20, 30 people on production. But I still didn't have a proper strategy. I didn't have an effective board. 
we were building it without a foundation, if that makes sense. You know, there wasn't, I didn't really have proper systems and processes. And so I was completely overwhelmed. I mean, I remember discovering that we had had a theft at one of the stores and it was some of our own team that was every day, instead of banking the full amount of uh, revenue, they would just take a little bit off the top. But it took almost three to four months for me to even realize that because I was trying to do the reconciliations myself. I didn't even have a full-time finance person on the team. And at some point I just was too overwhelmed to even do that. So I let a couple of months slip by and then realized, oh my God, there's all this, <laughs> all this missing money. You know, when you say what was the challenge, it was a lot. <laughs> Wandia had reached a plateau. She'd created a strong business, one with a lot of potential, but didn't know how to grow it further. And that's a point where many entrepreneurs get stuck. And that's also when Wandia crossed paths with us at Stanford Seat. So your business is growing so fast, you don't have a management team. At what point did you enter the seed program in that journey? Yeah, right around then. I mean, I think literally, yes, six or seven. And I knew I needed help. I knew I needed to step back from just the day-to-day -day craziness and sort of think this through. I wasn't sure what exactly was out there and what sort of programs I could apply to. But, you know, Kenya has a couple of business schools. There were a few other incubator type programs that people had talked about. And then somebody forwarded me the flyer for seed. And I immediately, I was like, oh my God, this is exactly what I need. And I had an MBA, but I had done my MBA 20 years before. I had hardly worked at all before that and never had my own business. And so I, I'd forgotten everything. In many ways, growing a business is completely different than starting a business. You've got to build and formalize structures, communicate your vision, and empower others to fulfill it. That's exactly what the Seed Transformation Program helps you do. It was just looking at the business in these different segments. One of the first things we did was that business model canvas, which sort of asks you to articulate who are your, what is your value proposition? Who are your customers? Who are your suppliers? What is your marketing? What are your channels? You know, even just being able to sort of organize the business into a framework that you can then start to see, okay, well, actually, yes, there's a lot we can still do there, but it's not that bad. But in this other area, wow, you know, so that was incredibly helpful. I think I had also just hired a finance person maybe the year before. So that, you know, after the theft, that really highlighted the need for somebody to be looking at, at the numbers on a daily basis. We also got a better auditing firm. And then, you know, one of the first things I did either during or immediately after the seed program was establish a real board. And I even invited one of my seed participants to join the board. Advisory and fiduciary boards are another subject we covered on this podcast before. On the episode Brain Trust, back in April 2022, we spoke about the value they can bring to your business and how to build one yourself. Assembling a board quickly paid off for Vivo. Once we then got this board in place and they pushed me to be more ambitious. So I remember, you know, sort of one year presenting a plan for the next year and we were going to open two stores, only using retained earnings, which is what we had done for the first seven years. And they said, why are we only opening two? Why not open five? And I'm like, but where are we going to get the money to open five? And they said, we raise it. And so we 
I think we raised $300,000 or something like that by the directors and by friends and family, literally. And since then, we've done two other small raises. So I think in the history of the business, we've raised a million dollars in total. And our revenues this year will probably be close to $7 million. And by next year should be at the $10 million mark. And that's just with the East African expansion. That's not including the US. That's not including anything outside of Kenya, Uganda, uh, Rwanda, maybe Tanzania. By the end of the seed program, when we had to do the transformation plan, which was, I think in my case, I, I did a six-year six plan, that has shaped pretty much the direction that we've taken over the last six years. It's incredible. I mean, I dusted it off the other day because I hadn't looked at it, you know, since COVID. And I was very, very happy to see that we're pretty much on track to get to where we had said, you know, we wrote that in 2016, 2017. And so we had goals up to 2023. And our goals for 2023 are pretty much aligned to what we had said where we'd want to be in the T-Plan. Armed with what she learned in the seed program, Wandia is ready to grow Vivo. And that means expanding beyond Kenya's borders. But expansion brings its own challenges. You've got to deal with a whole new set of laws and a more complex supply chain, not to mention a different cultural context. And while there are various strategies to address these issues, you've got to find the one that works for your business. Have you considered a franchise model for this expansion that's more asset light? We haven't considered franchise, and I'll maybe say a bit about that because we watched the experience of the South African brands that you know came into Kenya through franchises, the clothing brands, and that includes Mr. Price, Woolworths, Truewords, and a number of other ones, and they all ended up buying back their stores. And I think part of the challenge with clothing is if you're not sourcing your clothing locally, it becomes very expensive because you have to import it into the country. And if you want to price competitively, the margins just get smaller and smaller. And then if you're sharing that between the franchisee and the franchisor, then it doesn't really work that well for either side. So what we're looking at outside of having our own stores is a sort of wholesale or consignment model. So even now we have people in South Sudan who have just placed an order and they want to sell Vivo in their boutique. So rather than going to Turkey or China and sourcing product from there because they don't make their own designs, they're like, oh, why don't we carry the Vivo brand in our store? So that's exciting. Another avenue for expansion is through the internet, which can make your product visible to everyone regardless of geography. But it's not as simple as just opening an online store and raking in the cash. Even though we've invested heavily online, at least in our experience, 90% of our revenue still comes from our stores. But we believe online drives a lot of that traffic into store as well. So online is not just a selling. We don't just see it as the selling channel. We see it as how to raise brand awareness, how to entice people about particular collections or particular products. And I think the omni-channel way of thinking about it is, to me, where, where the magic lies. It's how these different channels reinforce each other. To gain traction, Vivo has approached the online market a little bit differently. In fact, they've spun off a whole new business. 
And as I understand it, you've launched an online fashion platform, Shopsetu, that yes. includes other other local yes. brands as well. So we started to explore what's out there for for fashion, what's happening in the rest of the world. And we realized that even in countries where there's incredibly successful marketplaces like Amazon, you will still find other marketplaces that are purely dedicated to fashion. And the thesis there is that, you know, it's almost the difference between going to a a supermarket or going to a boutique um, department store. So people don't necessarily want to go to a website and have to comb through electronics and food or whatever and see dresses sort of in the middle. And so the more we researched around the sort of success of fashion marketplaces, we we realized there wasn't anything like that here. And especially not anything that was targeted to the African consumer, the local consumer. So there are some marketplaces that sell African fashion brands, but they do it promoting it to the rest of the world. So they're sort of like, oh, you know, US customer, Europe customer, if you want to buy African brands, shop through us. Whereas we're saying there are 50 million Kenyans, 200 million East Africans who get up and get dressed every day and buy new clothes. And where online can you go to find, you know, what's on offer, what's out there? And that's sort of where the idea for Shopzetu came. Um, we currently have about 180 brands listed on, on the platform. And, you know, that number is growing all the time. Wow. So 180 fashion brands. Are these local East African fashion brands? Are these, you know, your competitors? Yes. I mean, they're Vivo's competitors, but... Shopzetu is a platform, so it doesn't really own the clothing. But we we try to push brands because I, I am such a believer in the power of brands. And we need African brands to become household names, to become very strong. This is fascinating to me because in a sense, you're promoting the whole industry. I mean, you're you're helping others go on your journey that you started 12 years ago. And I guess the business model is you get fees for sales, commissions, something like that, or some sort of package deal. So anyone who wants to list on your platform, you're getting some cut of the business. Yeah, so we take a 20% commission on sales, and then we'll also charge for the different value-added services. To find success abroad, Vivo is turning to the same strategies that help them thrive at home. One of the things we're realizing, though, is, and this is through even just the the Rwanda experience, is you can't just assume that because these are the styles that work in Kenya and this is the price point that works in Kenya, that that's necessarily what's going to work in Rwanda. So there's some things that are hugely popular here and don't sell there at all. And I mean, there was one, you know, one particular dress that was doing so well in Kenya and we sent it there and it just wasn't selling. And I happened to... We had hosted an event for Shopzetu and invited a, a Rwandese fashion designer to come and, and speak at the event. So she happened to be in town and she, she came and visited us at Vivo as well. And so because we had her in the room, I was like, can you help us understand why this style is not doing well in Rwanda? Because it was a, a full length dress. It was in bright yellow and it was in a particular kind of fabric. And my team said, oh, Rwandese people just don't like yellow. And this lady said, not at all. 
The problem is that it's off shoulder. Like the design, the shoulders were bare. And she said, Rwandese women are conservative. They're more conservative than Kenyans around what skin they'll show. Like they'll wear something sleeveless, but very few will want to wear something that sits off your shoulder. So it's things like that. I mean, this tells me that you have more work to do for your regional expansion, right? I mean, so obviously Ethiopian, another body type altogether, and color preferences, style preferences. I mean, this is the meat and potatoes of customer needs fulfilling or solving problems. So it sounds like you kind of need to formalize this research project into these new markets. Yeah, no, I think, I mean, and one of the things that, again, it goes back to an earlier, one of your earlier questions around focus groups and stuff like that. I'm a big believer in just sort of testing. The mistake we made with that dress in Rwanda is we sent a lot. And if we had sent fewer, it would have been a cheaper lesson to learn, right? We opened in Rwanda in, the, in COVID. So we weren't even able to visit and spend a lot of time there and talk to people or anything else. But I think with other countries we will do more talking and testing and also you know bring people in on the design side and the on the production side so you know even now i'm looking for a, a rwandese designer that can help us like work with us on a collaborative project you know like come up with a collection and also just to engage more so that you're not just a foreign brand, you know, like you're, yes, we may be Kenyan and we're neighbors, but, you know, Rwandese people are still very proud of being Rwandese and, you know, they have their own designers and their own. So how do we, how do we partner with them on, on that sort of thing and bring some of their designs to Kenya? And when I think of Vivo in the next five, 10 years, I see it being Pan-African and seeing, you know, having the best of the sort of Nigerian designers and Ghanaians and South African designers and having their product sold in Vivo stores all over the continent. Vivo is taking the lessons they've learned from their regional expansion and applying them to grow their reach even further. That's the Africa ambition. I mean, you, you sort of touched on this other ambition, which is the US market. And we're gonna start small, but the thesis is that the African-American consumer probably faces similar challenges to the Kenyan consumer in the sense that there are very few global brands that make for the body shape, size, skin tone of a woman of color. And so again, we've had anecdotal evidence of this. We've had people, African-Americans or Caribbeans come into our stores and go crazy. And I'm always like, where do you live? And they say New York or Atlanta. And I'm like, but why are you buying so much Vivos? Because we don't, we don't have a place like this. We, there are very few stores that we can walk into and feel like, oh my God, this store was made for me. Like the products here speak to me and at a price point that I can go nuts. It's exciting, actually. I mean, why not have a Kenyan brand that's well-known in the U.S. And, and doing well in the U.S.? I love that ambition. And, you know, Zara started in a tiny village in Spain. And, you know, most people who buy it now I did don't, not know that. Yeah, most people probably think it's an American brand. No. I would love Vivo to get to that level, not from an ego point of view, but just because I think for so long, people see Africa as a place you get your raw materials from. And then you do your value add somewhere else and then you either sell it back to us or wait till you use it and send it back here as a used thing or whatever. And I just think, you know, we need to prove to ourselves and to the rest of the world that we're just as capable. And actually we can come up with solutions and products and services that other people 
outside of Africa will benefit from and need as much as we do. So in the fashion space, we want to be part of that story. Wandia's story illustrates so much of the entrepreneurial journey. Your success may not derive from your first idea. Being able to learn from your mistakes and pivot quickly is key. I often remind our listeners that Uber started as a limousine service, not a ride-sharing business. And the same is true of so many of the largest companies in the world. Wandia also recognized that as her business grew, she could no longer manage it like a startup. She needed to build the team and systems to get beyond that founder's plateau. So many businesses get stuck at this crucial inflection point. Adding a board was also important. It brought a measure of accountability, but also challenged Wandia to be more ambitious and helped her raise capital. And while there was some good luck along the way, I'm reminded of Stanford professor Baba Shiv's comment that we make our own luck. At every stage of her entrepreneurial journey, Wandia sought out and listened to her customers. And that needs finding is pivotal. Not only will it give you the foundation you need to grow, it can guide your strategy when you're in new and unfamiliar territory. Whether it's serving an overlooked population or combating fast fashion or igniting pride in African craftsmanship, Wandia is focused on growing her impact, not just her bottom line. Even now, as she sets her sights across borders and oceans, she's thinking about what expansion makes possible at home in Kenya. But I think the why for me is also really important because you can have all these revenue goals, expansion goals, but you know, it's sort of, what are we trying to do and why does this matter? And how are we trying to be part of changing this industry and lifting this economy and creating employment and giving people more dignity and, you know, generating livelihoods? I mean, there's, to me, it's so much more than getting to 30 stores. I want to see a Kenya and an Africa where anyone who's buying secondhand clothes is doing it by choice, not because they have no other option. This shouldn't be the only way that 80% of Kenyans can get dressed. All that tells me is that people don't earn enough money. And so we need to get people, you know, earning more and having more choices. One of the biggest challenges that we face in this part of the world is the fact that there is so much unemployment and so many young people who come out of school and if they're lucky, they go to university. And even those come out and don't necessarily find any employment. And you know, right now in Kenya, we have 4 million unemployed people. And so the same passion, the reason I went into development, international development, whatever, was because I want to see a world where more people have easier lives, have opportunities, have fulfillment. And now I'm, this is so tiny in terms of its scale, but I still come to it with the same sort of purpose. And I think where I've landed now is because I've realized I know what potential the fashion industry can have to transforming the economies on this continent. If we just recognize pieces that have to come together because making clothes is still one of the most labor intensive manufacturing processes. Actually making fabric does, you don't need that many people. 90% of it is done by machines, but they haven't found a way for robots to stitch clothing. So you must hire people. That alone 
is to me a huge opportunity. If if we made more of the clothing that Africans wear on the continent, we could hire so many more people. And it's not just the people producing behind the machines, but it's the designers, it's the cutters, it's the bundlers. I mean, there are all these stages. It's the people who create the content, it's the models, it's the makeup artists, it's the photographers. I mean, there's just an entire industry that I believe could contribute a significant percentage of our GDP. And so... I see ourselves as warriors for economic growth <laughs> as much as we sell clothes. But, you know, underneath that. I love that. Yeah. I want to thank Wandia Gishuru. You'll be hearing more from her in an upcoming episode. This has been Grit and Growth from the Stanford Graduate School of Business. I'm your host, Darius Teeter. If you like this episode, follow us and leave a review on your favorite podcast app. Erica Amawake Ajay and VN Virgin researched and developed content for this episode. Kendra Gladich is our production coordinator, and our executive producer is Tiffany Steves, with writing and production from Andrew Gannam and sound design and mixing by Alex Bennett at Lower Street Media. Thanks for joining us. We'll be back soon with another episode.